As the U.S. and its allies continue their frantic evacuation from Afghanistan, questions are swirling about the future of the country's government. Meanwhile, crucial pandemic relief measures are imperiled, Nabisco workers go on strike, and vital efforts to vaccinate the population from COVID encounter major obstacles. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's August 24th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And tomorrow, Wednesday, please join us for a patrons-only seminar at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Brian will be discussing Afghanistan and the prospects of U.S. imperialism. This will be our August patrons-only seminar, and we'll release audio of it for patrons only after we record it, but tomorrow we'll be live at 7 p.m. Eastern. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarek, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start today? We're going to start with Afghanistan once again. You know, October 7th, 2001 marks the U.S. and the NATO invasion of Afghanistan. Of course, we know that the U.S. is describing the chaos at the Kabul airport in a way that would generate perhaps like a hysteria about how bad it was that Joe Biden finally decided to announce the withdrawal. We're going to hear from a Taliban spokesperson. The Taliban, politically an odious right-wing political formation, is nonetheless the new government in Afghanistan. And I think it's extremely important for our audience, and it would be important for the people in the United States generally to hear what the Taliban are saying. So we're going to play a short series of audio clips from a recent interview that one of the Taliban spokespersons gave. And it's important because it's about the current situation and reflects, if not the Taliban's view, at least what the Taliban says their view is about the situation right now. So we're going to play that. But I just want to just stop for a moment and have everyone consider what has happened. We are, in fact, witnessing history. This is one of those moments. The U.S. has been at war in Afghanistan, which is often described as the United States' longest war. That's actually not true. The longest war would have been against the indigenous people of the plains in the United States, in the Midwest, in the upper Midwest, or the the larger genocidal project against indigenous peoples that lasted for a couple centuries here in North America. But let's just take it 
for how it's meant, America's longest war. You know, the people who took the United States to war, the people who kept the United States at war, the people who are responsible for at least a quarter million and perhaps as many as a half million Afghans having died, including 71,000 of them being civilians, the same people who have continued the war such that the U.S. dropped 15,000 bombs and missiles on Afghanistan in just the last two years. These same people, meaning the U.S. government officials, the Defense Department officials, the military leaders, the people who have been selling this war, promoting this war, insisting that the war go on, they had an opportunity to end this war almost immediately after it began. In fact, People don't know, but the Taliban offered to surrender shortly after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan on October 7, 2001. The Taliban were defeated, and they offered to surrender, their only condition being to ask for amnesty. And the U.S. government said no. They said, we don't negotiate surrenders with terrorists. Now, who said that back in November 2001? None other than Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. He was one of the neocon team. That would include Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, of course, Dick Cheney, George W. Bush. He said that. We won't negotiate a surrender with the Taliban. I want to play an audio clip from Donald Rumsfeld from 10 years ago. He's speaking in a friendly environment. He's at the Hoover Institute, a very pro-war institute, and he's talking about how great they did with the dispersal of the Taliban in October 2001. Let's listen to this, and then I want to read to all of us a short article or a pieces of a short article from today's New York Times. Let's listen to Donald Rumsfeld. But it's worth noting that this was an astonishing operation. How did you, how did the Pentagon pull that off when it ran against so much of the grain of, a, yeah. of American military tradition? I think it, a lot of credit goes to uh, General Franks, uh, to uh, Del Daly, General Daly, who was head of the Special Forces people, to George Tenet, uh, because of this very close relationship that was developed between our Special Forces, our combatant commander, and the Central Intelligence Agency. And um, because we had the advantage of some militias on the ground, the Northern Alliance uh, forces that had been fighting the Taliban for years and been notably unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. And uh, the combination of all of that creatively leveraged everything that needed to be leveraged for success. And um, I, I don't think there ever was a time when a major military operation used special forces as the spear point. Where, where they were what was used to accomplish it. And it was thanks to the Northern Alliance, and, and, and they, they did a lot to win. But it was the combination of our Air Force, our naval power, and the ability to put people on the ground, special operations people who could use laser pointers on the Taliban, on the Al-Qaeda, and bring in air power uh, to, uh, to move them out, and then the militias to occupy the ground. Yeah, that's Donald Rumsfeld presiding over a huge catastrophe. Again, hundreds of thousands of Afghans dead, 
Thousands of U.S. soldiers or military personnel killed, tens of thousands more wounded in one way or another. Him bragging on 2000, in 2011 about how great it was. Now, in 2011, that was after President Obama had become president and sent another 30,000 troops to Afghanistan on the advice of his generals, you know, visionary as Donald Rumsfeld was. And they said, well, all we need is some more firepower, more troops, more bombs. And so they increased the military force of the United States in 2009 and 10 to more than 100,000, way, way more, 100,000 U.S. soldiers, in addition to the hundreds of thousands who were armed and paid for by the U.S. who are part of the so-called Afghan army. I want to recommend to our audience that you take a look at yesterday's New York Times. That's August 23rd, 2021. It's an article by Alyssa Rubin, Alyssa J. Rubin. She's been covering the Afghan and Iraq war for the last 20 years. Here's, I want to read a little bit to you. Within a few weeks, this is after October 7th, 2001, many of the Taliban had fled the Afghan capital, terrified by the low whine of approaching B-52 aircraft. Soon they were a spent force on the run across the arid mountainscape of Afghanistan. As one of the journalists who covered them in the early days of the war I saw their uncertainty and loss of control firsthand. It was in the waning days of November 2001 that Taliban leaders began to reach out to Hamid Karzai, who would soon become the interim president of Afghanistan. They wanted to make a deal. Quote, the Taliban were completely defeated. They had no demands except amnesty, recalled Barnett Rubin, who worked with the United Nations political team in Afghanistan at the time. Messengers shuttled back and forth between Mr. Karzai and the headquarters of the Taliban leader, Mullah Mohammed Omar, in Kandahar. Mr. Karzai envisioned a Taliban surrender that would keep the militants from playing any significant role in the country's future. But Washington, confident that the Taliban would be wiped out forever, was in no mood for a deal. Quote, the United States is not inclined to negotiate surrenders, said none other than Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld in a November 2001 press conference. So here we are, everybody, 20 years later, a quarter million Afghans dead, thousands of Americans dead, $2 trillion spent on a war. The Taliban were willing to surrender, but American imperialist hubris and arrogance exemplified by none other than Donald H. Rumsfeld said no to the surrender. That's how arrogant America is. And America was. Why isn't this really the dominant part of the story right now? I mean, Walter, when you look at Vietnam, when you look at what happened in Iraq, when we look at what happened here in Afghanistan, where the Taliban who were willing to surrender 20 years ago are now the government having defeated the United States. I mean, in any other country, those who had committed these kind of errors, miscalculations, blunders, and war crimes would be held to account. But in the United States, with the corporate capitalist media functioning as an echo chamber for their buddies in the Pentagon or whoever is in the White House, 
that kind of hard-hitting story, hard-hitting accountability just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a couple of things to respond to that. One, I mean, it begs the question, where did this hubris come from? I mean, where did the sense of invincibility that the Bush administration and others in the U.S. imperialist establishment, where did that come from? Uh, well, they thought that they were on the verge of, in their words, a new American century. The Soviet Union had just been overthrown uh, less than 10 years earlier. There were a series of wars that U.S. imperialism thought were highly successful in Yugoslavia, for instance, the invasion of Panama, bombing campaigns against Iraq in the 1990s, all of which inflicted horrific horrific suffering and death on the civilian populations. But for U.S. imperialism, they were successful wars because they met their objective. And so the Bush administration came along representing the most hardline militarist section of the U.S. imperialist establishment. And they thought that a series of lightning wars across the Middle East would essentially cement this concept, this status of the 21st century being a new American century where the U.S. is the only superpower. All of its rivals are either vanquished or forced into the position of junior partners, and they can essentially reign forever. So Afghanistan, you know, is a stepping stone on the way to the invasion of Iraq, which did happen. And then they hoped wars against Iran, Syria, Libya, Sudan, controlling the world's energy supply. I mean, that was the stated goal coming out of this think tank called the Project for a New American Century, which essentially became the State Department and the Pentagon under the Bush administration. That's how they were feeling at the time. We are invincible. We don't have to negotiate with anybody. And we're going to dominate the whole planet for the next century. And fast forward 20 years, I mean, not only is the Taliban presiding over their surrender, their evacuation in Kabul. And essentially, you know, the United States can only stay as long as the Taliban gives them permission to carry out this evacuation. You also have Joe Biden saying that, well, look, we've got to focus on China. You know, U.S. hegemony is slipping around the world. And this war and the rest of the engagements back from the quote unquote war on terror era are distractions because our domination over the planet is slipping. And that's what we really have to focus on. So yeah, I mean, it really says so much what a big difference all these years made in terms of global politics and the US position within it. Esther, our friend Matthew Ho, he's an anti-war activist now, but he worked for the State Department. And he spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. He resigned during the Obama surge. One of the few people of principle within the government who actually resigns. We know Colonel Ann Wright did as well. She resigned in March 2003 from the State Department because she opposed, on principle, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. But she had helped reopen the U.S. embassy in Afghanistan following the U.S. invasion. These are people who actually know how the government functions and what the situation is on the ground. And they have a sense or a feeling for the people on the other side. And Matthew Ho said... The reason he resigned, the reason he opposed the surge, he said, when you send more troops to Afghanistan, you will create more resistance fighters. In other words, you weren't going to win, but you were going to fan the flames because people don't want to live under occupation. And he said there were literally hundreds of armed groups, not just the Taliban. They might affiliate with the Taliban, but they were really locally based armed organizations or militias that had been created perhaps to defend their village, but they didn't want to live under occupation. They didn't want to have drone strikes on their wedding parties. Not that surprising. Anyway, so rare for U.S. government officials to actually do something on principle 
rather they're all, at least in the senior level, so filled with this kind of hubris. Right. It's so interesting that you mentioned Matthew Hill, because I was just thinking back to his testimony during the People's Tribunal held on the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War. I remember attending it at the University of District of Columbia, where he was one of the people who testified. And he talked about how part of his job was like, I think he had just stacks of money, you know, and that it was part of his job to, I guess, dole this out in whatever way the United States directed him to toward the various projects or people that they were supporting. And that reminds me of how now the U.S. is holding on to reportedly at least $7 billion of Afghanistan's assets, you know, after this defeat and after this continued tumultuous exit at the airport that the U.S. is in charge of. I think that the spokesperson that you quoted pointed out that, you know, the U.S. is in charge of that that chaos. It's not representative of what's happening in the rest of the country. In any case, this holding on to these funds, which include, you know, funds in U.S. banks, gold, and other assets that belong to the Afghan people, it's only going to hurt the poor, the people who are really struggling under increasingly scarce commodities, scarce, you know, basic needs to live. And people like Matthew Ho understood that and they understood the underbelly of what was really happening in the war and how the people of Afghanistan were the ones who were going to suffer. And I think that, you know, a lot of people listening, they know that this same tactic has been used right here in this hemisphere in Venezuela to sanction Venezuela, to seize Venezuela's assets here in the United States, to encourage the UK to seize and pirate Venezuela's goal. And in the Middle East, in terms of what happened in Iraq, how we are still occupying and stealing Syria's oil and occupying the area where they that they need to grow their wheat to feed people. So this is just this uh, viciousness of, <laughs> I'm going to use the expression that your brother used, uh, Richard Becker, the viciousness of U.S. imperialism. And you see that in the aftermath of it, they want to continue to have that kind of stranglehold that Walter talked about in terms of the new American century, where they can't beat you on the battlefield. They can't beat these countries with American military. So they try to hold on a stranglehold to the economy and to, you know, after 20 years of making the people literally scream in war and terror and torture and all the ways that the United States is under investigation by the International Criminal Court. Now they want to literally make the economy scream and chalk it up to the fact that things were so much better during the last 20 years when we know they weren't. Yeah, nothing that you said there was hyperbole. We're talking about modern day piracy. The only difference between the U.S. State Department, Treasury Department, and the U.S. government writ large from the pirates of yesteryear was the the amount of loot that has been seized because it's far, far greater now when you take Venezuela's gold or you just say, well, we're going to keep Cuba's assets or we're going to freeze Iran's assets. You know, just taking the wealth of other countries and seizing it. I mean, just piracy straight out. Now, I want to go back because we do want to turn and have the audience listen to 
the Taliban spokesperson. And then I want to get all of us to sort of give our own two cents about that. But I want to turn back to this article in the New York Times. Did the war in Afghanistan have to happen? Question mark. And it's written by Alyssa Rubin, Alyssa J. Rubin. Now, I want to go to one little part of that article before we turn. Quote, one mistake was that we turned down the Taliban's attempt to negotiate. This was actually their offer to surrender, according to a former senior advisor to General Joseph Dunford, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during part of the Obama and Trump administrations. Quote, we were hugely overconfident in 2001, and we thought the Taliban had gone away and weren't going to come back. Quote, we also wanted revenge. And so we made a lot of mistakes that we shouldn't have made. These are not mistakes. When you refuse to accept the surrender of a retreating enemy on the basis that you don't negotiate surrenders, that's a kind of unacceptable imperialist hubris. I mean, the United States dropped atomic bombs on Japan. I mean, a criminal war crime and a crime against humanity. It did it twice in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But then the U.S. sat with the Japanese to sign the surrender agreement on August 15th, even if it's an unconditional surrender, as that was. By the way, the U.S. insisted that Japanese troops remain in South Korea so that the South Koreans shouldn't get any ideas that they were going to become free and independent people once the Japanese were gone. So the U.S. insisted that the Japanese forces, this was the August 15th surrender agreement, that they stay in place in South Korea until General MacArthur could show up three weeks later and reoccupy Korea. I'm digressing, but my point is that What's the level of arrogance where you say we can't even negotiate someone's surrender? This is the arrogance of a colonial power. This is the arrogance of like the French talking about Haiti to the Haitians prior to the defeat of the French by the Haitians finally in 1804. It's the arrogance of racism. I mean, this is, I think the racism of this is very, very profound and dominant. And again, the Taliban, odious as they are, were undoubtedly able to build a coalition of armed forces who, even if they weren't pro-Taliban or disagreed with them on different parts of their program or their ideas, they didn't want to live under foreign occupation. And so they formed United Fronts and maybe many of them joined the Taliban. Anyway, let's go to a couple audio clips They're short, but I really want people to hear this. This is Abdul Kahar Balki. He's from the Taliban's Cultural Commission. This interview was on Al Jazeera. There's four audio clips. They're pretty short. The first one is the longest. It's about a minute and a half, but it helps us understand at least how the Taliban are framing the current situation, including the situation at the airport. Let's listen. The consultations are ongoing. And uh, of course, it is going to be an inclusive system. We are in talks and we have a a relationship, a working relationship uh, with the Americans about the security arrangement. And uh, the outside check posts are uh, in our control and 
inside is uh, under the control of uh, the United States forces and they're in constant contact with one another. It is very unfortunate for people to be rushing to the airport the way they are at the moment. I think it would have been much better because we have announced general amnesty for everyone, the security forces from senior to the junior level. And this fear or this hysteria that has taken place is unfounded. The developments were so fast that uh, all people were taken by surprise. And uh, when we entered Kabul, and it was not pre-planned because we announced initially that we do not want to enter Kabul and we want to reach a political solution before entering Kabul, making a joint and inclusive government. But what happened was that the security forces left and they abandoned their places and we were forced to ask our forces to enter and take over security. Walter, that's pretty interesting. I mean, there's a lot there in that minute and 31 second clip, but I want to turn to the last part first and ask you your thoughts. Uh, he's making the argument. We don't know if it's diplomacy or, you know, diplomacy is a form of perjury frequently. We don't know if it's diplomacy or whether it's their true thinking, but it might be true. Like they did not expect, because it seemed like no one expected that the moment they came around the gates of Kabul, that the entire, quote, 300,000 strong military, you know, government military would just quit. I could believe that. I could certainly believe that. I mean, certainly the U.S. establishment was caught by surprise. I mean, pretty much every government around the world seems to have been shocked at that development. So I could believe that they didn't expect to be able to walk into Kabul unopposed. Maybe they anticipated protracted negotiations for the surrender of the city. I mean, it was clear that the government was done. But yeah, I mean, the fact that the security forces did seem to just completely melt away, may have made them feel compelled to enter the city because they wanted to project this image of being essentially a more competent government. You know, the government that was set up by the United States was notoriously corrupt. The leadership had very little support among the population. And by being able to perform the basic functions of the, some of the basic functions of the state, like making sure that, you know, robbery isn't committed, that violence isn't done wantonly on the street, that looting doesn't happen was actually specifically the thing that the Taliban said that they were concerned about. Yeah, I mean, projecting an image as being the only competent force in Afghanistan capable of governing the country is very politically significant to them, crucial to them, in fact, both in terms of gaining domestic support and in terms of gaining international recognition, which seems to be the thing that they're focused on the most. So yeah, that actually seems plausible to me. Nicole, there's another Taliban leader, spokesperson. His name is Amir Khan Motaki. He's chief of the Taliban's guidance council. He talked about the situation at the airport in Kabul. And I think we have the transcript. I wondered if you could share it with us. Because again, not that we're following the Taliban or supporting the Taliban. What we do want to have happen, though, is have people hear the Taliban because, you know, it's one thing for the U.S. media or U.S. government officials to talk about their enemy in a particular way. But it's important to hear them because we're still evaluating, as is the world, what will a new Taliban government look like? Yeah. So this is essentially the transcript of an audio clip from Press TV. 
And Amir Khan Motaki, who is chief of the Taliban's guidance council, said, quote, all Afghanistan is secure, but the airport, which is managed by the Americans, has anarchy. The U.S. should not defame itself, should not embarrass itself to the world, and should not give this mentality to our people that the Taliban are a kind of enemy. He also blamed the deaths at the airport on the Americans in what quickly became a very combative interview in this clip. So he continues, this is more direct quote, quote, the Americans announced that we would take you to America with us and people gathered at the Kabul airport. If it was announced right now in any country in the world, would people not go? Then the host, who again is on press TV, quickly said, well, that wouldn't happen in Iran. And Mataki responds, be sure this would happen anywhere. So I think that's actually a pretty good point, Brian. Yeah, it is. I mean, if the United States went to almost all countries in the world and said, look, we have planes at the airport in the capital city, and we're going to take thousands of you to the United States, and we're going to sort of direct you to leave this country and come to the United States or to some other host country. Yeah, thousands of people are going to show up at the airport. So again, the way this played out, the fact that the U.S. did not understand that the Afghan government was about to collapse and that the way it was presented, announcing with great certainty, as Joe Biden did on July 7th and 8th, oh, this won't be like Vietnam where Americans and their allies, their Vietnamese allies were being airlifted off the embassy roof on a helicopter. It won't be like that at all. And then obviously his intelligence is faulty. I mean, Biden wouldn't know whether that's true or not true, except the Pentagon and the CIA were telling him don't worry, you have 30 days or 90 days or maybe even 18 months before the government in Afghanistan falls, but in fact, just the opposite. And so the whole miscalculation by these arrogant imperialists, miscalculation on every front, refusing to accept the Taliban surrender in November 2001, because we don't negotiate surrender suddenly, all the way to this last fiasco, and then the media is like crying crocodile tears about people at the airport. Yes, it's terrible what's going on at the airport, but how did it get so terrible? I mean, you know, the Soviet Union left Afghanistan in 1989. It didn't look like this at all. I mean, it was a very organized withdrawal of Soviet forces. In fact, there was a government that was established. The Najibullah government continued in power for a couple of years. I mean, it wasn't like this at all. Again, hubris, arrogance, but a totally incompetent U.S. government. No, and I, I think that some of that, that hubris that you're talking about is still displayed in the media coverage that we've talked about. And when I watch CNN on Sunday, for example, the foreign correspondent, Sam Kiley, you know, he gives this monologue at the end of his report. He says, it's not just the personal tragedies that are so heartbreaking here. It is the tragedy of Afghanistan itself. For 20 years, so many millions of people believed that they would receive Western support. They believed in the evolution of female education, of the arts, of cinema. They thought they had a future. Now that future is getting on an aircraft and leaving, as one of the evacuees just said to me, Afghanistan is seeing a total brain drain. And so 
I just think that that smacks of the same type of arrogance that the people that supported the U.S. are the only people who have a brain, who can think, who care about their country, and that all those people are leaving and the rest of the people are left with the Taliban and they have no future. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's go back and hear another audio clip. This one's shorter. It's about 25 seconds. Again, this is Abdul Kahar Balki. He's the Taliban Cultural Commission. And again, this interview was on Al Jazeera. Our foremost priority is, is uh, discipline in our own ranks and not uh, enforcing laws on others, but enforcing it on ourselves first and then uh, giving it as an example for the rest of society to follow suit. So we are the first ones and our members, members if they are involved in such things, will be the first to be prosecuted. All right. So here, again, you can see the Taliban, at least in their public presentation, they're trying to appear moderate. The spokesperson says it's going to be inclusive. You know, we're going to make sure that discipline is first and foremost in our own ranks, because, of course, when armies come into occupied cities, all kinds of terrible things can happen and do happen. So he's trying to sort of send messages of assurance to the international so-called community. The Taliban is obviously very interested in getting recognized. Anyway, let's go on and play the next clip. The point of intra-Afghan talks was precisely that we come to, a, to a, an agreement about what those rights actually entail. Sharia law is known to everyone, and there's no ambiguities about the rights of women, the rights of men, not only women, but also the rights of men and children. And right now we're at a situa situation that, uh, that hopefully during the consultations there will be clarifications about what those rights are. Now, that seemed to me to be seriously disingenuous. The rights of women, but also the rights of men and children. Again, Abdul Kahar Balki is trying to send a message. It's not, we're not going to be the old Taliban where girls were denied the right to go to school. But he says there's no ambiguity about the rights of women and girls in Sharia law. Well, of course there's ambiguity because there's many, many different interpretations of that. So again, it seems to me this is sort of a soothing message from the Taliban spokesperson. We don't know really what that means. So I think it's completely premature to talk about that. There's one final clip. Let's listen. It's, this is how he ends the interview. Well, I don't think people believe we are terrorists. I think it's just the war on terror. It was just a, a term coined by, by the United States. And anyone that did not fall in line were labeled terrorists. Well, he's not wrong there, Walter. No, he's not wrong about that at all. I mean, that's absolutely been the entire approach of the U.S. you know, diplomatic corps, of the corporate media, of all the U.S. politicians since the so-called war on terror started. Because, you know, of course, you can't go to the people of the United States and say, you know, your daughters and sons have to go kill and die or suffer terrible life-altering injuries, both psychological and physical. So that ExxonMobil and Chevron and all the US-based corporations and British corporations can control the world's energy market or so that 
Lockheed Martin and Boeing stock prices can go up so they can sell a lot of missiles. And so, yeah, that's true. They can cock this line that everybody who stands against the United States is a terrorist and everybody who stands with the United States is a lover of freedom or democracy or human rights or, you know, is a champion of the rights of whichever, you know, noble sounding cause whatever is most convenient for them to attach themselves to at the moment. So yeah, I mean, I think the rest of the world has kind of caught on to that. And now the Taliban can essentially exploit that, exploit the obvious hypocrisy of the US rhetoric, and sort of attach themselves to this trend in world politics that rightfully rejects that. So again, you know, of course, not an endorsement of the Taliban's ideology or anything, but clearly this is something that the United States has set themselves up for by adopting this ridiculous war on terror rhetoric and then backing it up with the most devastating indiscriminate force that they possibly can administer. About 20% right. higher than it was before the pandemic began. So the rich are doing fine, the working class there. people are there being left behind. In discussions. While the major the corporations were bailed out, that we just played, uh, the, he says the, the US executives who the hold Taliban so much have of their military wealth agreements that they talk to each other all the time about out. the situation working inside and outside the airport. Some temporary relief, we know the US would have uh, no not problem dealing with a reactionary the government should it take their power in Afghanistan and the Taliban undoubtedly want to be able to rebuild the country their ability to succeed as an accepted or legitimate government in Afghanistan will largely be measured by Afghan people on the basis of the economic and social circumstances that they find themselves in China has made it clear, I think, that China is prepared to be very involved in the reconstruction effort in Afghanistan. And of course, there's a small border area between China and Afghanistan. And that border area is Xinjiang, the western part of China, where the Uyghurs are. Obviously, the Chinese have been very involved in trying to stop what they consider to be a Taliban or Al-Qaeda-like phenomena within the Xinjiang population. And that's been going on for a long time, for 20 years. The U.S. has now decided to say that that's genocide without evidence that the people in Xinjiang are enslaved. But obviously, China, from a geostrategic point of view, will want to make sure that extremist terrorist-type organizations like Al-Qaeda don't use Afghanistan as a launching pad. And again, the Taliban, while they had given Osama bin Laden guest status, and again, they were willing to turn Osama bin Laden over to a third country, a Muslim country for trial. But then Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. If you harbor a terrorist, you are a terrorist. You know, that was the line back then. But the Taliban were never really and did not have the same agenda as Al-Qaeda at all. So right now, there's a new moment. There's obviously the end of the war is coming. It's not 100% certain that all the warfare will end because there's already armed uprisings in the North where the Northern Alliance was rooted. I would say for us in the socialist program, if there was a socialist opposition to the Taliban, a socialist uprising, a socialist worker or farmer alliance then you know we would be very supportive of that movement to oust the Taliban. The Taliban are a bourgeois, will be a bourgeois government, a government of capitalists and landlords. 
their resistance against imperialism gained them a lot of support. But workers are workers and poor peasants are poor peasants, regardless of what nationality. And they don't want to be exploited by Afghan capitalists or foreign capitalists. So if there was a leftist opposition to the Taliban, we would be all for it. But the fact of the matter is that the left, which was strong in Afghanistan, that took the power in 1978, was for the most part devastated and decimated by the CIA. And the only reason the Taliban and the other iterations of the so-called Mujahideen were able to sort of fill the political void in Afghanistan is that there was a void. And that void was created by imperialism's war against the secular left forces in Afghanistan. And I don't believe they will be strong enough at this time, at least, to mount a credible opposition. So anyway, we'll have to keep monitoring it. It's very important that the left understand what's going on. When this war started in October 2001, there was actually the very day of the invasion, as we've mentioned on this show and elsewhere, there was a, quote, peace demonstration in Union Square in New York City. I was present at it. It was about 10,000 people strong. It was one week after the Answer Coalition had its first action, which was September 29th, 2001, just 18 days after September 11th. We had a march of 25,000 in Washington, D.C., and we said, we want justice, we want peace, U.S. out of the Middle East and opposing any invasion of any country. And it was surprising that so many people came given the hysteria 18 days after September 11th, but we did it. And then the next week, other political forces on the left organized a similar peace demonstration. And at the moment the demonstration was taking place, literally, we got the word that the bombing of Afghanistan had begun And we and the Answer Coalition started chanting, stop the bombing of Afghanistan, and a whole bunch of people wouldn't join our chant. So you could see that the peace demonstration wasn't really opposing the U.S. war on Afghanistan. This is what gave the U.S. really a free hand, a license to keep the war going in spite of the ridiculousness and stupidity and arrogance and colonial character of the war. But again, it's a consequence of demonization of the enemy was so thorough and the Taliban were so odious anyway, you know, you didn't want to look like you were in the camp of the Taliban, I guess. But, you know, the anti-war movement has to really be guided by principles and by anti-imperialist foundational politics that are like a bedrock. Anyway, we'll keep following the story in Afghanistan. It's pivotal to world politics, and it certainly will be in the coming weeks and months. Let's turn, Nicole, though, to Another story, COVID and capitalism, we could call this COVID and capitalism an absurd system, and there's a particular example of it. But let's just start with the human toll. So many kids are being hospitalized right now. This is the new surge with the Delta variant. Yeah, it's pretty horrendous. I mean, new deaths now, the seven-day average of new deaths every day is over 1,000. That's up from just, you know, it was down in a couple of hundreds just a couple of weeks ago. This level of cases, we now are at just about 150,000 new cases a day. Again, that's a seven-day average to kind of minimize the drastic ups and downs and any data differentials. So 150,000 new cases every day on a seven-day average, which is pretty much where we were in January or February, which when we're looking at these cases, it's just the, the vast majority of them 
are people who have not been vaccinated or who are kids and haven't been able to get vaccinated. It's just really, really heartbreaking and really telling about, you know, the politicization of this vaccination process. Before I go into that, we should talk to Brian about the Pfizer vaccine finally getting full FDA approval yesterday. Yeah, well, that's important. I mean, Nicole, a few weeks ago, we were going over all the different reasons that people who weren't getting vaccinated weren't getting vaccinated. And there's a hard core in the United States that is, you know, absolutely opposed to vaccination, considers mask wearing to be, you know, like an assault on personal liberty. And even Donald Trump, he was speaking the other day and he was trying to claim credit for the vaccine. And when he did, even his the Trump supporters were starting to boo him as if getting a vaccine for a contagious disease was something bad. Yeah, Brian, I mean, the study we were talking about was this really big study that was done in July by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And about three in 10 of anybody who was unvaccinated at that time said they'd be more likely to get vaccinated with full FDA approval. So this could be a really good thing. About the time of that Kaiser study, it was an estimated 93 million people who were eligible for vaccination, but hadn't you know, had chosen not to get them or hadn't been able to get them. So, you know, let's say half of those people, because maybe the three in 10 was hopeful. Maybe some people were kind of exaggerating. Who knows? But let's say half of that, half of those people who said they'd be more likely to get vaccinated with FDA approval. If even half of that group got vaccinated, that would be another 14 million people vaccinated. So, you know, this, I think, is a really important improvement and movement ahead. Of course, Moderna still has not been fully approved. And I'm not sure if the last I checked, Moderna still hadn't even filed all the paperwork that they needed to. So they clearly are not prioritizing this. But before you go on, I just want to also ask you in that study that you cited, and that you talked about a couple of weeks ago, another big issue that would make a difference for people who were nervous about the vaccine was whether they could get it from their doctor. I mean, these are like basic things in terms of health policy. I know they are completely basic. Yeah. So the study kind of organized the unvaccinated into two groups, like you were saying, Brian, people who are like waiting to see kind of what happened and the people who are definitely not going to get vaccinated. And of the group that they were calling the wait and see, like, you know, almost half of those people, if they could just get it from their own doctor, they would do it, which makes total sense that somebody you have a relationship with, they know all of the ins and outs of like your kind of personal health history it makes a ton of sense. And I wanted to mention another variable because in the study, the definitely not group that I just mentioned, the people who said absolutely never getting a vaccine, 11% of them would be more likely to get it just if there was free transportation to get the shot. That's it. I mean, it's just, it shows, you know, these really basic things that the US government just is not even, they clearly have the information. If you and I are able to access this information in the New York Times and in this study, you know, they clearly have the information, but they're not doing this. But again, on the positive note of Pfizer getting the full FDA approval, just yesterday, New York City announced that they're requiring shots for all education staff, including teachers and principals. And the FDA announcement triggered an automatic mandate for all students who are going to any state university of New York and city university of New York, any of the CUNY systems. Everybody, all the students have to be vaccinated to attend in-person classes. And directly after the FDA announcement yesterday, the Pentagon announced it was moving forward with plans to require all active duty troops to be vaccinated. And that's 1.4 million active duty service members. So, you know, this is a good thing moving forward. I just have to add that I saw a headline from Bloomberg today 
China hits zero COVID cases with a month of draconian curbs. So, of course, Bloomberg is highlighting these so-called draconian curbs, but what they are are testing and lockdown. I mean, the things we know work, especially in addition to the vaccine. And China crushed the Delta outbreak in 33 days. That's a quote from the article. China crushed the Delta outbreak in 33 days. Because they don't have a situation where 6.8 million landlords are you know, desperate to evict the people who can't pay rent. China just doesn't have that kind of freedom. Well, Brian, let me tell you about the case you were referencing earlier, the COVID and capitalism clearly being, I mean, this is just such an absurd system. You found this story and I was blown away by this case. So one of the rapid test makers, Abbott Laboratories, just finished spending two months destroying, completely destroying 8.6 million test cards for their rapid tests. 8.6 million, according to employees who the New York Times was able to interview. And then after that happened, this was in June and July, that these 8.6 million test cards were being destroyed. Then employees were laid off in the thousands after that. And this all happened after the CDC came out, you know, a few months ago with guidance saying that fully vaccinated people didn't need to get tested. But of course, half of America isn't vaccinated, including a lot of kids, and most of the world hasn't had access to the vaccine. So, you know, where they got this idea that destroying things is, well, I'll tell you in a minute, actually. But before we get there, I'm going to quote from the article. America was notoriously slow in rolling out testing in the early days of the pandemic. And the story of the Abbott tests is a microcosm of the larger challenges of ensuring that the private sector can deliver the tools needed to fight public health crises both before they happen and during the twists and turns of the actual event. This is a quote from an executive of another testing business. Businesses crave certainty and pandemics don't lend certainty to demand. You know, this just is another way to say capitalism doesn't work for people. Capitalism doesn't allow us to plan for people's needs only for companies' profits, which is what Abbott Laboratories was doing. A planned economy would have hung on to those test cards or ship them somewhere else or ship them to schools, knowing that, you know, as they were destroying these test cards in June and July, schools were going to be reopening in August and a lot of kids haven't been vaccinated. There's so many useful alternatives that, you know, the time of these employees, the money, you know, to pay employees, you know, while they were destroying them and the actual physical test cards themselves could have been used. And so the rationale they used, because I'm reading the story, I was like, okay, there must be, I'm missing something, right? We must be missing something. This makes so little sense on its face. There's got to be something else. Well, the New York Times was able to get a statement from Abbott Laboratories chief executive, Robert B. Ford. And he said, well, they were expiring. So that's why we needed to destroy them. But when the New York Times talked to the employees, they said the expiration date was more than seven months away seven months away. And there's people all over the world who could use these. I'm going to quote again from the article, employees in Maine, many of them immigrants from African countries, were upset at having to discard what might have been donated. Other countries probably could have used the materials, according to Dr. Sergio Carmona, chief medical officer of a nonprofit that promotes access to diagnostics. He said, quote, this makes me feel sick noting that more than a dozen African nations have zero domestic funds to buy COVID tests. Just completely disgusting. I mean, I just want to emphasize one more time the piece in the article that I read earlier. The story of the Abbott test is a microcosm of the larger challenges of ensuring that the private sector can deliver the tools needed to fight public health crises. I mean, that says it all. 
Wow. Okay, let's keep going with COVID. And of course, schools are reopening, Esther. Right. And this outbreak is happening as schools are reopening. And there are six states that have almost no ICU beds left. And that's Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Texas, and Kentucky. And some of these same states are nearly out of or are totally out of pediatric ICU beds, you know. And this is happening as those scenes I described last week are happening, where you have these mobs of people showing up at school boards, threatening doctors, nurses, and other health officials, testifying in favor of mask mandates in public schools. And I want to just read really quick some comments from a New York Times opinion writer, Margaret Renke, she says, things have gotten this terrible for one reason. Our elected leaders keep making an already bad situation much worse. Consider Tennessee's Governor Bill Lee. When a handful of school districts here began to issue mask mandates to protect children too young to be vaccinated, as advised by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, he issued an executive order allowing disgruntled parents to opt out, effectively rendering all mask mandates unenforceable. And she goes on to say, we cannot blame ignorance for Mr. Lee's executive order. It is nothing short of perfidy to place a higher priority on humoring the kind of people who threaten doctors and nurses than on protecting the health and safety of school children and their families. Some 1,200 children every day are getting sick with COVID in this state, and Mr. Lee's response is to tie the hands of the people who are actually trying to help. So, again, that's Margaret Renke, an opinion writer at the New York Times, talking in particular about Tennessee. But that is kind of an example or a microcosm of what is happening as school administrators try to open schools in a safe way. But you have these governors, people like Ron DeSantis in Florida, you know, Mr. Lee in Tennessee, he's just copying what he saw Ron DeSantis do. And, you know, I'm not sure why this isn't criminal you know, to basically endanger the lives of the most defenseless children, you know, so that you can score political points. It's just more in line of the COVID madness that you were just talking about. Yeah, really bad. And DeSantis, of course, like a lot of the people who are, you know, promoting uh, opposition to masks and promoting opposition to vaccines, he's vaccinated. To get a meeting with DeSantis, you have to be vaccinated and you have to take a COVID test. But meanwhile, he's playing politics because he knows with the Trump base and others, it's not only Trump supporters, but, you know, that's where a lot of it got started. But this kind of sort of hysterical opposition to things that used to be considered normal in terms of health policy. Americans aren't used to masks. That's true. That's very common in Asian countries. But, you know, people in the United States, we all learned about vaccines. I mean, getting rid of smallpox, getting rid of polio, getting rid of measles, that saved a lot of lives. And it was a requirement when you went to school. You had to come in with your vaccination cards. The idea that having kids have to be vaccinated now, or if they're too young to be vaccinated, to do something like wearing a mask. I mean, the best way to keep a child safe from COVID-19, the best possible way is for their parents to be vaccinated. But a lot of the parents who are insisting that there not be masks are also the parents who are refusing vaccinations. Anyway, tragic and heartbreaking to see this spike 
in ICU hospitalizations of children. Again, the U.S. has played politics on so many fronts. Here's another headline. This is all related to COVID and capitalism, too, since that's our topic. Census data suggests America's hunger problem may be waning. Wow, that sounds optimistic, right? That's the Washington Post from yesterday. Census data suggests America's hunger problem may be waning. Very optimistic. Then the rest of the headline, but food assistance continues to top pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, people are hungrier than they were before the pandemic because millions of more people are in poverty. And here's the subtitle, even a huge increase in food assistance benefits and summer pandemic relief payments may not stave off hunger for millions of Americans. That's the sort of less happy part of that story. And it's the first sentence. And then again, hunger around America is improving compared with a month ago, according to the most recent U.S. census data. But food insecurity, a euphemism for being hungry or hunger, has a long way to go before returning to pre-pandemic levels. So here you have a situation where the economy has been for big parts of the population destroyed and their savings wiped out and small businesses wiped out. The billionaires have become ever, ever richer. Billionaire wealth went up 35% in the last year. And Esther, we're just about to have a whole bunch of people lose the supplemental unemployment benefits while hunger is still higher than it was before COVID started. Yeah, that's right. So there are 8 million people set to lose their federal unemployment benefits on Labor Day, actually. And what I was trying to say is that that's an irony that shouldn't be lost on the Biden administration if he, he's received a lot of a lot of support from organized labor, but he's allowing this to happen. So in addition to the 8 million people who are set to lose those benefits, there's another 3 million people who will lose the extra money put into their check from the pandemic unemployment program. So you have, you know, more than 10 million people either being thrown off of the unemployment assistance or having it reduced. So, and this is at a time when there are still far fewer jobs available than there were before the pandemic. And when we have a new surging Delta variant that makes many people wary about going into work environments where they may be very vulnerable to getting the virus. So, you know, as we talk about these other programs coming into the end, like the housing moratorium and, and other, other issues that are very serious for people, healthcare, this is a major issue affecting millions of people also.
And let's compare that with how the stock market is doing. I mean, what you two are pointing out, I think, is so important that, you know, the recovery isn't really there for the working class yet. I mean, we've been hearing about the recovery from COVID for so long, but unemployment is still at elevated levels. Um, hunger is still at elevated levels. So many of these social indicators still show that people are really, really suffering. But for the people who are in charge of the economy and the people who are in charge of the government, who hold a lot of their money in the stock market, I mean, it's really a good barometer for how well the rich are doing. They're fine. You know, the crisis has been over for them. I mean, the US stock market started collapsing in the middle of February. And by the end of August, it was right about back where it was before the crisis began. It took about six months. And and now they're doing so much better. I mean, the stock market is at record, record highs. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, for instance, you know, a good barometer of how well the stock market is doing. It's about 20% higher than it was before the pandemic began. So the rich are doing fine, but working class people are being left behind. And while the major corporations were bailed out, the wealthy executives who hold so much of their wealth in stocks in those corporations, they were bailed out. But working class people received some temporary relief, but not a true resolution to the grave problems they're facing. Okay, we have a number of really interesting and important stories. They're basically short stories. I mean, we'll provide a short version of them, but I want to get to them. Let's go to that incredible article, Nicole. It's not an article. It's a story about what happened to Michael Williams. Yeah, the headline, in fact, is really misleading. It's called How AI-Powered Tech Landed Man in Jail with Scant Evidence. Brian, the headline is How AI-Powered Tech Landed Man in Jail with Scant Evidence, which is definitely the case. But I mean, the real story here is that he's a black man and a lot of where this tech is, is in black neighborhoods. So let me start from the beginning and walk people through the story. So the story is an AP. It's a really good story to look for. But the man's name is Michael Williams. He was in his 60s when artificial intelligence sent him to the Cook County Jail in Chicago for almost a year. He was then released for insufficient evidence. I'm going to read from the article, quote, Williams was jailed last August, accused of killing a young man from the neighborhood who asked him for a ride during a night of unrest over police brutality in May. And I'll just add here that what actually happened is a gunshot came whizzing through his car, hit the young man while Williams was driving him. Just incredibly terrible. He Williams sped off to the hospital to try to save him, but he died. I'm going to keep going from reading from the article, quote, the key evidence against Williams didn't come from an eyewitness or an informant. It came from a clip of noiseless security video showing a car driving through an intersection and a loud bang picked up by a network of surveillance microphones. Prosecutors said technology powered by a secret algorithm that analyzed noises detected by the sensors indicated Williams shot and killed the man. So this AI is called ShotSpotter, which is becoming more and more ubiquitous. You've probably heard of it. It operates in about 110 American cities uh, with cameras around a neighborhood that claim to be able to triangulate loud noises and determine whether the noises are gunshots, fireworks, car noises, or other sounds. Employees can listen to the recordings in their offices, but the secret algorithm really does the work, not to mention that employees receive only, quote unquote, on-the-job training rather than any sort of, you know, meaningful training for such a life-and-death job. But of course, in addition to that, a 2011 study commissioned by the company itself found that dumpsters, trucks, motorcycles, helicopters, fireworks, construction, trash pickup, and church bells have all triggered false positive alerts. Cities spend millions of dollars on this, like Chicago's $33 million contract. 
And perhaps the most insidious part of this program is this, quote, the company's methods for identifying gunshots aren't always guided solely by the technology. ShotSpotter employees can, and often do, change the source of sounds picked up by its sensors after listening to audio recordings, introducing the possibility of human bias into the gunshot detection algorithm. In the Williams case, evidence in pretrial hearings shows that ShotSpotter initially said the noise the sensor picked up was a firecracker, a classification the company's algorithm made with 98% confidence. But a ShotSpotter employee relabeled the noise as a gunshot. Later, ShotSpotter senior technical support engineer Walter Collier changed the reported Chicago address of the sound to the street where Williams was driving, about a mile away, according to court documents. And even worse, that's my addition, and here's the article, quote, employees can and do modify the location or number of shots fired at the request of police, according to court records. And in the past, city dispatchers or police themselves can also make some of these changes, unquote. I mean, if this isn't just a recipe for continued police terror and continued police racism, I don't know what is. You know, Brian, that's my understanding, but, uh, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case here. One study published in April in the peer-reviewed Journal of Urban Health examined ShotSpotter in 68 large metropolitan counties from 1999 to 2016, the largest review to date. And it found that the technology didn't reduce gun violence or increase community safety. So, I mean, it just just boggles the mind. Why are cities paying millions of dollars for this technology that doesn't work instead of actually caring for these communities? What this technology provides is clearly cover for police and an ability to slap crimes on anybody and increase clearance rates while prosecuting and jailing innocent people. And if, you know, if you have ever lived in America, you will know exactly who is being targeted by this. And it is absolutely and and particularly young black men. And that is going to I mean, I can say that for certain. Michael Williams is 65. He's home now, but he's deeply traumatized from having a, his passenger shot, desperately trying to save him, but not being able to. And of course, from spending almost a year in the Cook County Jail with dwindling phone calls allowed out, terrible food and conditions, being away from his home while he's in his 60s. And of course, by being picked up like this in his own neighborhood, he's like scared to leave his home now. Brian, I have the audio of what the sound sounds like, and I'm going to play it because this was the evidence. This was the main evidence that was used to hold him for almost a year. And recall, he was released for insufficient evidence. But I want to play it because everybody can hear and judge for themselves. This was the evidence that was used. Did you, did you hear that, Brian? That's it? Can you play it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't really hear much. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Esther, Walter, Brian, maybe you hear something I don't hear. One more time. That's incredible. This man spent almost a year yep. in the awful Cook County Jail yep. based because on of this. this algorithm. I mean, it's just absolutely disgusting. And it's just so obvious that all it is is cover for police. I mean, imagine even if this thing did work, all you're doing is reacting to the fact that there were gunshots. Like, isn't there other things we should be doing with these millions and millions of dollars? Couldn't Chicago spend $33 million on, I don't know, like food for the residents there or like free housing? I just, there are things I can think of that would do a lot more good. So the hospitals are filling up again. Millions of families are hungry. That's called food insecurity because the U.S. doesn't like to use the word hunger. 
the census report shows that there's more hunger now than there was before COVID. We have a lot of people are about to lose supplemental unemployment benefits. 6.8 million families are not being evicted right now because there's a moratorium. 2 million more families are on the forbearance program. They're the ones who can't pay their mortgages. They're quote, homeowners, but really the banks own the homes, not them. So 8 million families, that's probably 20 to 30, 35 million people, Walter, facing eviction. And you can see a rising tide in the media now to end the moratorium. Yeah, that's right. And the developments in court are moving quickly. An appeals court, a federal appeals court, heard the case brought by the Alabama Association of Realtors, an organization representing the interests of landlords. They ruled to uphold the moratorium as expected. And now the case has been appealed to the Supreme Court. The landlord organization, the Alabama Association of Realtors, brought that appeal to the Supreme Court. John Roberts, who's the justice responsible for you know responding first to appeals coming from D.C., he ordered the government to reply to the landlord's appeal issue, you know, to file their official argument by noon yesterday, which they did. And now the politics, the political struggle is really going to heat up. Like we saw in the aftermath of the last moratorium's expiration, like we saw in the run-up to the initial ruling by the D.C. Federal Circuit Court Judge Friedrichs, political pressure could play a decisive role role in this. Um, The courts understand, I mean, the courts are are highly sensitive. They're highly attuned to the needs of the elite in the United States. And if it appears, if it appears that there would be serious disruptions, the functioning of society, if there would be real widespread opposition and mobilization and action taken by thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in response to an act of such abject cruelty, the repeal of the eviction moratorium, just as the pandemic is resurging, as the Delta variant kills thousands and thousands of people every week, they might decide no thanks. So even though there's a super majority, a far right majority on the Supreme Court, that doesn't mean that they're immune from the people's movements. And so I think protest activity is going to step up in the coming days as the Supreme Court weighs this issue. And I think very importantly, though, very importantly, even if the Supreme Court ruling does not go the way that it should, if the Supreme Court does strike down this moratorium, Congress retains the ability to act at any time. And in fact, the only reason that the moratorium is subject to being challenged in court is because it's done by the executive authority of the CDC, the Biden administration, through the authority of the CDC. If Congress issues a eviction moratorium, not only could it be indefinite, lasting for the duration of the crisis, it could cover 100% of the country and not just in areas that are seeing a high transmission rate of the pandemic of coronavirus. It would be shielded from these types of legal challenges. And the Democrats can do that if they want. The Democrats can do that without needing a single Republican vote because they control both houses of Congress. So I think the struggle placing demands both on the Supreme Court and on Congress will continue. And if that struggle is fierce enough, those millions and millions of people could stay in their homes. And so, Walter, I actually want to mention another important court decision. On Friday, a judge in California ruled unconstitutional that Prop 22 measure 
Prop 22 declared that these gig workers were like independent contractors and that they couldn't really like unionize. So the judge says it appears only to protect the economic interests of the network companies in having a divided, ununionized workforce. One more big union struggle happening right now. The strike is widening against Nabisco, which makes snacks like Ritz crackers, Chips Ahoy, and Oreo cookies. And on Thursday, workers at the Nabisco plant in Chicago walked off the job and picketed the plant, joining workers in Portland, Oregon, who started the strike back on August 10th, and also joining workers in Aurora, Colorado, and Richmond, Virginia. And so these workers are with the Confectionery Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union, and they're striking because they've been forced to work 12 to 16-hour shifts, six to seven days a week during the pandemic. Now, the demand for snacks grew during the pandemic, and that's unfortunate for the health of so many Americans who are already like suffering from obesity and, you know, high blood pressure from like sodium and, you know, sugar products. And so the revenue for Nabisco's parent company, Mondelez, also grew to $26.6 billion during 2020 with $3.6 billion in profits. And so making all this money, Nabisco is forcing workers to work these long hours and trying to eliminate paying them overtime at the same time. And the company wants to offer new hires a more expensive and probably not as beneficial health care plan. So there's finally this long simmering issue of Nabisco shutting down factories and eliminating jobs in the U.S. and shipping jobs to Mexico. This year, more than 1,000 jobs were lost when plants in Georgia and New Jersey were shut down. In 2018, the company eliminated the pensions of thousands of workers and retirees. And in 2016, Mondelez laid off 600 people at the same Chicago plant and moved part of that operation to Mexico. And, you know, all this is happening as the new Mondelez CEO could reportedly make more than $55 million during his first year after he starts the job in November. So that's something we want to continue to watch these two labor struggles of gig workers and these workers at Nabisco. Yes, very, very important to support workers. Whenever workers are on strike, we need to show solidarity. We need to build solidarity. We need to build consciousness that without the unions, the workers are left to, you know, the whims and the desires and the demands of the bosses. Our only hope is by building the union. Walter, let's go now to Liberation News. What are the big stories in the newsletter this week? So on liberationnews.org, we've got a few really interesting, important news stories up over the course of the last week. Of course, we update the site daily, and you can sign up for our newsletter by going to liberationnews.org, and you'll see the button at the top. One to highlight, it's titled COVID Surge, Alabama is out of ICU beds. This is another dimension of the current pandemic crisis that we didn't mention on this episode today, but crucially important information in this article about the crisis in Alabama and how that's related to this nationwide surge of the pandemic. Death toll soars to nearly 2,000 in Haiti earthquake is another article I highly recommend people checking out. I mean, absolutely tragic what's happened in Haiti. The death toll is astronomical. And it's important to keep in mind that the reason why Haiti is so 
impacted by natural disasters like earthquakes is because of the legacy of colonial underdevelopment that continues to this day that puts the country in a more vulnerable position. So this article explains some of that important history as well. Finally, wanted to encourage people to check out an article titled Worst Air in the World, Salt Lake City, Utah. It's true. It's scientifically true. For the past few weeks, Salt Lake City has actually had the worst air quality on the planet. You can find out more details by checking out the article on liberationnews.org. Press the button at the top to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Nicole, before we leave, we have an upcoming monthly seminar, correct? Yes, Brian. We have a seminar coming up tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. This is a seminar for any patron at any of the tiers on our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash a socialist program. So for $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, if you you know can afford it and can really help support this programming, you can join our live seminar with Brian Becker. And we'll be talking about Afghanistan and the prospects for U.S. imperialism. Please join us. We'll have a registration link on our Patreon page for Again, those at $5 and more a month. Thank you so much to all of our subscribers and hope to see you tomorrow. So we have a busy week here at the Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf on our regular weekly series about the big stories in the economy. We're focusing on the basics of Marxism as it pertains to the economy. And this is right now part of a multi-part series on agriculture. Wednesday night is the Patreon seminar, webinar, and then on Thursday, we'll be back with the real story. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.